Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week on Sound Medicine, we begin a deeply personal story, what one doctor learned from his daughter's serious injury. What I needed from Millicent's physicians were the words to regain my speech so that I could be an effective advocate for my daughter. Plus, why expensive tests aren't the only way to make a diagnosis. If the initial history and physical doesn't show anything other than the symptom, sometimes a follow-up is better than a workup. A good physician is like Sherlock Holmes. In order to make a diagnosis, you need the clues. Looking for new ways to make surgical training stick. How can we actually change the learning process itself to improve the acquisition and retention of knowledge? And the emphasis on patient-centered care and how it has changed surgical practice. I must admit my whole schedule is really related around Julie. You know, when could Julie be in the operating room? When was Julie available? Because we were so busy. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, public radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with a deeply personal story from a regular contributor to Sound Medicine. On Inauguration Day in 2013, the daughter of Dr. Larry Kripe took a terrible fall while attending an event in Washington, D.C. Millicent had taken her first semester off from Yale to work on the Obama campaign. The traumatic brain injury she suffered that night changed her life, and it changed the perspective of both Larry and his wife, Mimi, on what it means to be a physician and what it means to be a family member of someone going through a health crisis. It's a story Larry will share over the next few weeks on this program. Here's part one. Two years ago, my daughter Millicent was in Washington, D.C. when she tripped and fell over a stair railing and struck her head on the concrete floor 30 feet below. She was rushed to a nearby trauma center, unconscious and intubated. When the police called my wife, Mimi was in their hotel room waiting for Millicent to return. I was at home in Indianapolis. When I got into my car, I knew two things. She was alive, and I was a good 10 hours away. A few hours from the hospital, I bought a can of diet soda and a bag of potato chips at a gas station. The clerk asked how my day was going. I wanted to reply as he counted out my change. I am driving to D.C. to see my daughter who fell 30 feet. She's in a coma and I don't know what to expect. I shrugged my shoulders instead. I was speechless. I was not surprised. It is commonplace to hear people describe the loss of speech in the first hours following a tragedy. For most of the day, I'd driven silently over roads, slick with newly fallen snow. Conversations with my wife were few and brief. There was little information as she waited for the various test results. I refused to say certain words like coma aloud. I needed to pretend that I was driving to DC for a different reason. And finally, I feared that my voice would crack and betray my helplessness. Now, I can tell the story of my struggle to recover my speech. I want to reflect on the words my daughter's physicians chose and the ways in which they spoke those words to my wife and me. I believe the doctors were well-intentioned, but instead of being reassured, I felt disabled. The words they chose often had multiple different meanings. Take the word recovery. In the first 15 hours, I learned that recovery meant Millicent would not die, Millicent would eventually return to college, 
or Millicent might one day live independently if she were lucky. Few of her many physicians clarified what was meant when they spoke the word. No one offered what to look for as we waited, and no one came close to asking what the word meant to us. Later, as we made arrangements to bring Millicent home by air ambulance, my wife and I discovered that we each had latched onto different meanings of the word recovery. And on some level, we were preparing for different futures. The multiple unclarified meanings had created a space where we spoke without necessarily understanding one another. And then there were the incomplete sentences. The pattern was predictable. A physician would, in a clear, distinct voice, inform us about a test result. But as the conversation veered away from information to what the information might mean, his voice became indistinct, his sentences incomplete. One physician offered to show us the MRI of Millicent's brain. He was so definite as he explained the source of all the distressing abnormalities on the scan and how research had clarified their cause. But when asked whether the extent of injury would help us understand what we might expect, his sentences trailed off into an indecipherable mumble. The early hours and days of Millicent's injury were like facing a series of doors. I did not expect to know what was behind each door, but I wanted someone to tell me what might be there. I know how heartless certain words sound when spoken early in a tragedy, but what I needed from Millicent's physicians were the words to regain my speech so that I could be an effective advocate for my daughter. Of course, I wanted to know everything would be all right. But more importantly, I wanted to know that if it wasn't going to be all right, I could muster the resources to make the best out of a horrible situation. Perhaps I expected too much. Several times in my life, before Millicent's fall, I had been the physician who met the parents of a critically ill college student when they first arrived from out of town. I now understand that their silence was the sound of bewilderment and helplessness. I now believe the words I speak must provide the words people need to regain their voice and prepare for the future. Dr. Larry Kripe is a palliative care physician at University Hospital in Indianapolis. We'll have part two of his essay next week. And shifting gears now to talk about both the art and science of making a diagnosis. Pinning down exactly what's wrong with you can be a delicate dance between what you tell your doctor and the questions and decisions your doctor adds to the mix. Later in the program, we'll talk about working with your doctor to resolve back pain. But first, Dr. Kurt Kronke is a professor of medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine. He's made a careful study of what brings people into the doctor's office. And he told me about half of all complaints that make their way to the doctor's office have to do with pain. Headache, back pain, neck pain, arthritis, things like that. Another quarter are sort of upper respiratory complaints, like people have coughs, sore throat, runny nose. Actually, those are not so uh, problematic because they usually get better on their own. And then another quarter are things other than pain, like fatigue, dizziness, stomach problems, uh, chest pains. So what I talked about in the paper, about half are pain and about a quarter are things other than pain. Okay. Now, this might come as a surprise to a lot of listeners, but how often are doctors unable to connect these symptoms to an obvious physical cause? Well, the minimum is about one out of three. Some studies indicate about half the time. And that doesn't mean the symptom isn't real. It just means that after you do your testing and your evaluation, it's what I call a symptom-only diagnosis. So they have fatigue, they have headache, they have back pain. 
And what we're left with is, okay, now we need to manage it. So often, once it becomes unexplained, it means we don't find anything on testing or exam, a specific disease, and they just have a headache or fatigue or trouble sleeping. And that's probably a third to half of the time. Okay, because I was I was surprised because I thought, well, you'd say about the pain, we can automatically tell what <laughs> where the no. pain is coming from. But, but the more mysterious ones like fatigue or dizziness would be harder, but that's not the case. In fact, we, we found that it's true of almost every symptom, <laughs> whether it's uh, chest pain, which we all, always worry about, or headache mm-hmm. or fatigue or stomach trouble. It's about a third to half. It really, uh, the symptom doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. just a uh, fact. So what's the best way to get to the bottom of what the symptom is is really about, what the root cause is? The other thing we found is 75% of the information actually comes from the history, which means what the patient tells you. So usually in a matter of five or 10 minutes, the doctor can get the patient's story. And 75% of the diagnosis can be made on that alone. Physical, maybe another 10 to 15%. Surprisingly, tests provide the least diagnostic information. So and my recommendation we automatically think we right. need a, a, some sort of scan. I often say that if the initial history and physical doesn't show anything other than the symptom, sometimes uh, follow-up is better than a workup at that point in time. And what I do mean by follow-up, I mean usually symptoms will get better in a matter of a week or two or at most four to six weeks. So that can be the waiting period, and the doctor can focus on symptom management, unless there's red flags. I mean, we all think about chest pain. Mm. Uh, But many symptoms, uh, fatigue, dizziness, pain, watchful waiting, that doesn't mean ignoring the symptom. You can treat the symptom, but wait on the tests. In most cases, a person who has a symptom and it lasts a matter of a few days, they don't even need to go into the doctor. But then when it lasts, unless it's something like chest pain or something like a stroke, but most things like fatigue, trouble, sleeping, pain, you know, you can give it a week. Which I think sometimes if we feel like a lot of us kind of drag our feet to make that initial call anyway, we're hoping that you'll figure out something definitive while we're sitting there in front of you. Sometimes the history identifies something you need to get a test on now. So I'm not saying testing initially is wrong in most cases, but many times uh, testing for back pain or headache and things like that is not going to reveal anything. The symptom, sometimes it's telling them what's not. I don't think this is likely to be a brain tumor or a stroke or something like that. I, we see this commonly. Here's how we treat it. Most people will get better over two to three weeks, but if you don't, then we can take the next step. So if the doctor doesn't find a cause for the physical symptoms at that first office visit and you decide to do some watchful waiting, is a serious problem likely to emerge over time? Because that that would be our fear, right? We finally got to the doctor's office and and now we're going to go watchful waiting and we still don't know if we've got something, if it's serious or not. Yeah. So watchful waiting does not mean watchful neglect. (laughs) Uh, And that's an important distinction because it's not like everything's normal, you know, come back if you don't get better. I mean, I think we need to concretely say to the patient, this should get better over a matter of four to six weeks. And then if not, let me know. At that point, you may do testing. Now, what's interesting, the other thing we found from a number of studies is if you don't discover something serious in the initial evaluation, like the first several months, it's pretty rare that the doctors miss something. Okay. And that's an important issue. Now, you may continue to follow and something new develops. Okay. Repeated testing is particularly problematic. So somebody who's had one CAT scan or one uh, cardiac cath for chest pain and comes back to get the second and the third, uh, I think the evidence indicates that uh, the serious diagnosis usually uh, become obvious in the first few months by the history and physical or tests. Uh, or if there's what I call signs. So, you know, it's not just pain, but there's blood in their stool or they're coughing or they're losing weight or they're having fevers. So when we come to the office, what can we as patients do to help you figure out what's happening with us? The doctor should be prepared to ask for your story. When did the symptoms start? Are there any other signs or symptoms? Have you had it before? Uh, Do a symptom-focused physical. In other words, if it's uh, in your chest, they would listen to your heart and lungs. And then decide if a test is indicated now. 
The other thing that we find brings a lot of patients in is we think patients may come in because they want to test a referral. Usually they, they want to understand what might be causing and what to expect. So probably the most two most useful questions a doctor could ask at the end of the visit is, was there anything else you're worried about? And the patient might say, well, geez, I don't know, but I was wondering about a brain tumor because I had an ant with a brain tumor. Ah, I'm glad you asked the question. Let me tell you why I don't think it's that, and we don't need a CAT scan now, but we'll get one if we need be. And was there anything else you thought might be helpful? Because sometimes they say, I was wondering if I needed this or that. So I think asking, was there anything else you were worried about? And was there anything else you thought helpful? That brings the patient into the partnership. So should we be coming in with our medical diary? I mean, if we're having symptoms, just jot some notes down for you? I think it would be helpful because doctors are not always going to ask that. And we often find the patient is afraid because the doctor's busy to bring things up. So I do think to bring in a list of your two or three questions. I mean, I think if you have 20 questions, there's not time. But particularly with symptoms, I think it's to say, what are you really worried about the symptom? And is there something you want? And if the doctor doesn't ask for them, bring them up. Dr. Kirk Kroenke is a professor of medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Next week, he'll talk about how doctors deal with people with health anxiety. It used to be called hypochondria. It may become more noticed by a loved one or a doctor first who has to bring it up. You have to bring it up sensitively because that's why the word hypochondriasis went away. It had a lot of negative connotations. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is 75. I'm just smart enough to know that it's not wise for a guy to talk about new moms and their weight, and I'm just foolish enough to do it anyway. In a new study, researchers followed a group of women who'd recently given birth. On average, the women gained about 32 pounds during the course of their pregnancy. A year later, a lot of those added pounds still lingered. About 75% of the women weighed more than they did before they became pregnant. Nearly one quarter had held on to more than 20 pounds of their added baby weight. It's well known that most Americans are participating in the growing obesity epidemic. According to this study's author, pregnancy weight may help propel many women into this club. Some good news here. The study showed that exercise after childbirth, not surprisingly, seemed helpful in chasing away those pounds. Some more good news. My time is up, and I'll go offer my unsolicited advice somewhere else. That was the number 75, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, the second most common reason that people go to the doctor is back pain. We'll talk about how you can manage it. It's really beneficial, whether it's back pain or I think anything else, that you keep a diary of the complaints for which you're going to see the doctor. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. Where you get your hip or knee replaced can make a big difference when it comes to how much it will cost. This week, Blue Cross Blue Shield revealed results of a study that found while the average replacement procedure costs about $30,000, the actual prices can range anywhere from sixteen dollars to $75,000, even in the same city. For a change, some good news about Ebola this week. The World Health Organization added the West African country of Mali to its Ebola-free list. And in Guinea, schoolchildren went back to class for the first time in five months. The WHO says it's not all good news, though. The risk of another outbreak continues since the virus seems to also be spread from fruit bats to humans who come in close contact. Want to lose weight or quit smoking? Get your partner to do the same. That's not really new information, but a study released this week from the UK confirms it. Researchers followed 3,500 married or cohabitating couples who wanted to give up their unhealthy habits. 8% were able to kick the smoking habit if their partner did not, but 70% were able to increase their physical activity levels if their partner joined them. And from Seattle this week, it looks like at least some diners are paying attention to the calorie counts that are now mandatory on restaurant menus. In a survey of 3,000 regular restaurant diners, the number of people who use the calorie information has tripled, even though it's still a minority overall. 
The American Journal of Public Health reported that the people most likely to use the information tended to be women, married people, and high-income diners. If you post it, they will read, or something like that. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. Back pain is the second most common neurological condition after headaches, and it's the second most common reason to go to a doctor after colds and flu. So what can help you get a good diagnosis and treatment that actually helps you? Dr. Jack Stern is a neurosurgeon on the clinical faculty of Weill Cornell Medical Center, and he's the author of Ending Back Pain. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Dr. Stern. Thank you for inviting me. So you say in the beginning of your book, you sum up the entire book in one phrase, get to know your back. What exactly do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that um, back pain is actually much more complex than the title or the description would lead you to believe. And if you're really suffering from back pain, you need to educate yourself if you're going to treat yourself properly. Now, when we're trying to help our physician understand where our back hurts and what could be the cause, what kind of questions should we really be asking ourselves and what kind of notes should we be taking to help you out? Terrific question, because I believe that in our present healthcare system, we have less and less face time with our physicians. I experienced that myself with my doctor. So it's really beneficial, whether it's back pain or I think anything else, that you keep a diary, even if you start that diary the day before you see the doctor, of the complaints for which you're going to see the doctor when it started. Where is the pain? And when it comes to back pain, when did your back pain start? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Is it on the left, on the right? Is it in, is it in your legs, one leg, both legs? Does it get worse if you cough or sneeze, etc.? You know that a good physician is like Sherlock Holmes. In order to make a diagnosis, in order to solve the crime, you need the clues. And it's so helpful if you, the patient, in this case, me, the patient, when I'm a patient, give the doctor as many clues as possible to make the diagnosis. And it really helps if you do that before you get to the doctor's office. Because I'm thinking that, you know, um, you'd probably like us to, to pay more attention before. And we're talking specifically about back pain. Um, but are there things that we don't think of telling you? I mean, you know, how much detail should we how, how many notes should we really be taking about, you know, where it hurts, how it hurts, describe the pain, all that? In the book itself, I, I go through a checklist, which I think is very helpful so people don't have to recreate the wheel and say, is this important, is that important? So I, I give people a framework in which to think about their back. But in general, I would say you can never give too much information. It's much worse to give not enough information. i rather have someone give me a page or two pages of their history than come in and say, well, I really don't remember, doctor. For me, when I see a patient, the more the better. Now, you say in your book you don't like to look at MRIs before you really talk to the patient and understand the patient's history and you examine them. Why not? Because um, there's a wonderful book written by Jerome Groupman, who's Professor Harvard who talks about how doctors were taught to group symptoms and complaints, and then we pigeonhole them into a diagnosis. So that, and it's really a likelihood that, that you or I as a physician would do that if we look at the MRI first. So if I look at an MRI, I see, I see someone has a herniated disc, I'm going to go see that patient and I'm going to look for further evidence that that patient has a herniated disc, loss of reflexes, weakness, loss of sensation. And suddenly, you're not thinking about all the other things that might be going on, and that herniated disc may actually be an incidental finding or a red herring. So it's so much better, and maybe I'm old school, but I think all the doctors I really respect take a great history, spend time with their patients then examine their patients, make a diagnosis based on the history and the findings of the exam, and then see the studies, the MRI or the CAT scan, to see if that diagnosis that they've come up with independently is corroborated by a CAT scan or an MRI. 
to me, that's one of the essences of good medicine. So in order for a patient to get a right diagnosis, which will lead to the right treatment, besides that questionnaire and taking notes, is there anything else patients can do? Yeah, bring somebody with you to the doctor's appointment. Okay. I can't tell you how often, I'm afraid I'm probably included in this, you know, you arrive at the doctor's appointment and suddenly your, your mind is mush and you don't remember facts, you don't rem- and you say things that aren't totally accurate for one reason or another. So my wife always joins me and she says, no, Jack, it happened three weeks ago, not six months ago, and it was pretty bad then, it wasn't mild. You know, and I, I, so often, the person who accompanies you to the, to the appointments, particularly if they know you well, can make a major contribution and supplement your own history and questionnaire to a significant degree. I, I know that you know, you're a neurosurgeon, you specialize in spine surgery, but you've also been a back patient <laughs> yourself. You want to tell us that story? Oh my goodness, yeah. So I actually relate the story in the book because I want people to know that I, I know what it's like to have back pain. And just in a few sentences, my wife wanted to surprise me for my birthday. We were on vacation with a massage. She knows that's always good for health. And it was a special massage where somebody walks on your back, and I had this impression that I was going to be a, this tiny person with petite little feet going to walk on my back. turned out that it was a rather large person who walked on my back, and after she walked on my back, I couldn't walk. And I've had back pain for a while. It was really severe. And actually, in some ways, that, that, that incident motivated me to write the book because I came back from vacation. I had a, right away had an MRI, and I showed the MRI to two of my partners. I'm the senior partner of a group of neurosurgeons. And in the background, I can almost hear them sharpening their knives, and they said, Jack, you need surgery. And I said to myself, I've got to figure out ways to avoid surgery, and I did. And this is now 15 years later, and I never had surgery, and I still function at a very high level. So in many ways, that was the motivation for writing this book. And, and you do cover a, a lot of different techniques. And while we're on the topic of massage, now I know we're not talking about having somebody walk on your back, but for massage therapy, for people who suffer from back pain, I would imagine that either sounds like a great or a horrible idea. I mean, which do you think it is? I mean, do you recommend massage therapy for people with lower back pain? One of the things I, I say in the book is that back pain is a description, it's not a diagnosis. So it helps to make the right diagnosis. Now, most of us, when we have back pain, it's because we have a muscular strain or sprain. And I would say that for that specific diagnosis, massage is a terrific therapy. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. My guest is Dr. Jack Stern. He's a neurosurgeon, and he's the author of Ending Back Pain. Let's talk about something called the Alexander Technique. Now, your wife is a practitioner, and so you're a fan of both your wife and the Alexander Technique. So what is it, and how does it help? Well, the Alexander Technique is amongst the number of techniques that I mentioned. I I hope I don't give it too much bias in the book. But it's a mind-body technique because I believe that much pain, much back pain is caused by what I describe as poor use. That is, you're sitting in the front of a computer in a weird position, you're sitting in the car in an airplane for hours, slumped over, you're sitting on the couch, and if you took a picture of yourself, you'd say, wow, I look contorted. So the Alexander Technique is a mind-body technique that teaches you proper body mechanics. It's used a lot with musicians and actors because you can't play the cello well unless you use your body well the same thing for of a violin or even the piano because most instruments cause you to be in a, what we call a non-anatomical position so and that's true for all of us almost every activity we do so the alexander technique is a good way for someone to educate you how to use your body's mechanics best and then you remind yourself to do that There's a portion in your book where you talk about treatments and talk about recommended treatments that research institutions had done studies about that you kind of took issue with. Um, And there were some of them were pretty common. Can you pick one or two and tell us a little bit about those? I would say that the one that's hitting the press, both the lay press, the newspapers, and the medical literature right now is epidural steroid injections. So 
there's hardly a patient that walks in my office that hasn't had epidural steroid injections, which is where a needle is placed into this spinal canal and steroids are injected. Now, the dilemma for the physician is that if you read these studies, and a, a recent one came out again, and there was one in the New England Journal of Medicine, probably the most prestigious medical journal in the United States, that says that the epidural steroid injections are basically no better than placebo. And yet, the dilemma for me, the practicing physician, is that I've sent patients, lots of patients, with epidural steroid injections, and yes, a lot of them haven't benefited, but a lot of them have. So does that mean that because I read this study, in a relatively innocuous procedure, am I going to stop recommending it? And that is a real dilemma. And I discuss that in the book because I want the reader to get a feel for what it's like to be in my head. How do I think about a problem? Because if you have a better appreciation of how I think about it, then maybe you'll have a better appreciation of the problem as a whole. And that, that's a classic example. And quite frankly, I haven't stopped sending patients for epidural steroid injections even though I've read the study, because I think there's a subpopulation of patients who do benefit. And, um, you know, if it doesn't benefit, yeah, not much is lost. Well, you know, when it comes to spinal surgery, I mean, that's um, pretty intense and the recovery is pretty rigorous. Um, you you want to make sure that what you're doing is correct, you know. Um, how can a patient help in that process? I mean, you know, because you have to make a decision of, of whether you get surgery in a specific kind of surgery. Is there some way to help them? Well, I think that people have to help themselves, and that is do as much research uh, as possible. Once a recommendation is made by your surgeon, do as much research as you can, and you will be absolutely surprised how much information is on the Internet, uh, videos and YouTubes of entire surgeries. That's number one, educate yourself. And number two, I would strongly suggest, I'm a big fan of getting a second opinion. If you're going to undergo spinal surgery, particularly if it's elective spinal surgery and it's a significant operation, get a second opinion and see what the second opinion has to say. Ask piercing questions um, of an opinion that is for surgery or one that's against surgery or one that suggests one type of surgery and another. I think that almost 90% of patients who come to see me, and actually I'm seeing patients today, have come in with notes that they made on the Internet. It's, and it's, I think it's great because an educated consumer is my best patient. Well, Dr. Jack Stern, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and congratulations on your book. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Dr. Jack Stern is a neurosurgeon specializing in spine surgery. His book is Ending Back Pain. It's time now for this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. Ask any dog owner and you'll hear the same certainty that their four-legged friend can understand them. Now a study from the UK confirms that. Jill Dittmeyer has more. Researchers had dogs listen to human speech through a set of speakers, one on the right side of the animal, one on the left. Then they gave a simple command. They watched to see if the dog inclined its head to the right or to the left, depending on the tone of the command on the right side of their brain apparently will process the emotional content of what we're saying. Whereas on the left side of their brain, they will process information from the speech that we are uttering. That's Sound Medicine's veterinary expert, Dr. Liz Murphy. I ask her about the findings, which conclude that dogs' brains are organized for speech and understanding in ways that are similar to humans. I think it's important to understand as a dog owner and a veterinarian that they may not understand our, the specific words that we're saying to them, but when we utter a phrase to them that contains several words and we add to that emotion, that they can parse out aspects of that speech. And Dr. Murphy says humans can learn from the study. When we encounter another dog... When we approach a dog that we're unfamiliar with, it may be very, very important to realize that dogs will take a lot of meaning from how we say things to them, not just what we say. When we're praising a dog, I think it's important to, for example, 
say, you know, good boy in a happy voice versus good boy in a very unemotional voice or good boy in a really angry voice. And when we deal with other people. Particularly in these days when we are often texting people or emailing people where someone might see the words but not have an emotional context with which to understand those words. Now, the bigger question is, will they ever do a test like this on cats? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how you would get a cat to do, well, anything. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Here's a question our next guest asked recently. What's the best way to train a surgeon on a new technique? Dr. Price Kerfoot is an associate professor of surgery at Harvard. It turns out that that answer he discovered has implications for other kinds of learning as well. It's what he calls spaced training. I finished my surgical training here at the Brigham in 2002 and did what many folks said was shooting my career in the foot by focusing my research on education, educational technology. At that time, the gold standard were these web-based teaching modules. You would present a clinical scenario, ask a few questions, and they'd work through it. And our first study was a large randomized trial that looked at how effective this could be in terms of improving learning outcomes from a surgical training week that the students had during medical school. And while we found that it improved learning, we then tested about five months later and found that it still improved the learning. We were thrilled it was published, but unfortunately that's really the glass half full interpretation of the data because when you look at the forgetting curves, they're both trending down together, back down to the baseline they were when they hadn't done anything at all. So it raised this question as to why are we wasting a week of the student's time, which correlates to about $1,000 of their tuition, to teach them something that ultimately they won't retain. Or our more positive spin was, how can we actually change the learning process itself to improve the acquisition and retention of knowledge? So at that time, we jumped into the cognitive psychology realm, and there were two main research findings that we put to work. The first is the spacing effect, which is if you present information in bite-sized chunks and then reinforce it over spaced intervals of time, it can increase the efficiency of uptake of the knowledge and encode it in such a way that it's preferentially retained. Actually, the spacing effect is fascinating because it now it appears to have a distinct neurophysiologic basis. So they've been able to show that it can increase neuronal longevity and number in the hippocampus of mice that are trained that way. In 2009, they identified a phosphatase mediator of the spacing effect in, in Drosophila, fruit flies, and now we're looking with fMRI studies to identify where in the human brain this effect takes place and how it can be optimized. So an example but, of how that works. One basic one, this was, again, a, a beautiful study that was done by Moulton et al. up in Toronto. Standard surgical training generally brings people together for a day session, four hours long, to learn a new skill. And what they did is a simple study, but they either had everybody come together for four hours on a single day, or they randomized the other group to receive an hour once a week for four weeks. And they were able to show those that had the spaced sessions actually had increased uptake of the knowledge and then they used a mouse microvascular suturing model and showed there was better transfer of the knowledge from the simulator to this mouse model of those people that had received the space training compared to the bolus training, or as we call it, binge and purge training. Dr. Price Kerfoot is an associate professor of surgery at Harvard University. We'll post a link to an article about space training at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. And one thing we keep learning here on Sound Medicine is how the practice of medicine never stops changing. In a recent issue of JAMA, Dr. Julie Ann Freischlag looked at how the surgical profession has evolved in the past few decades. Dr. Freischlag is the vice chancellor and dean of the School of Medicine at University of California, Davis. Welcome to Sound Medicine. It is a pleasure to talk with you. 
Well, thanks for asking us. Recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association, you offered an overview on how the practice of surgery has evolved in recent decades. And your your paper came out near the 100th annual meeting of the American College of Surgeons. And I'd like to talk to you about several of the changes you highlighted. First is teamwork. Uh, surgeons have always counted on nurses and assistants. How have they become more of a member of a, a larger team in recent decades? Well, and that's just a great question. Um, I used to be a chair of a department of surgery at Johns Hopkins for 11 years before I took this position this past year. And what we had done is we did have a team, but the surgeon really came in almost as a captain of the ship. And similar to things they had seen in pilots and other leaders, sometimes there were intimidation among the team that wouldn't speak up to point out things that maybe weren't right or not going as well or even frankly wrong. So what we did is did a lot of team training. You utilizing airline pilots and others to have everybody be a part of the team in the operating room so they would speak up. And a lot of it had to do with calling each other by the first name, making sure everybody could comment, saying, did somebody contaminate something? Is there too much bleeding? Is there something wrong with the patient? Did they get their antibiotics? And that actually helped improve the atmosphere of the operating room. It made it more congenial for everyone to work there. And then it also expanded so that the preoperative and postoperative care got spread among the team, too. So many of us are using physician assistants and nurse practitioners to do histories and physicals, seeing the patient, and seeing the patient for the surgeon are in concert. So for all of that, because of including them into the team, uh, it made everybody feel more important part of the team and actually made it so that the surgeon, even though they were still the leader, really welcomed comments and feedback. And that's what's really changed. Well, you also mentioned that for the past decade or so, regulations have held surgeon trainees to an 80-hour week. Now, that sounds like a lot (laughs) to most of us, but surgeons in training used to work a lot more than that. How have the work limitations affected surgeon training and and patient safety? Well, when I trained, you're absolutely right. We were in-house every other night. And frequently, I didn't get home to the next night till way into the evening. So our average hours were probably 110, 120 hours a week, almost the whole week. Lots of fatigue. Uh, It made us resilient, and people really thought that you needed to be there for every minute of every case all the time. Now, because of safety issues as far as residents not being tired, uh, worried about mistakes from people that are tired, as well as, again, the teamwork, we decided that residents should work less than that, that they should be home one full day a week, and this is all residents, not just surgery residents, and that they really are only on call every third to fourth night. And when they're in the hospital, they're really focused on education. We used to do a lot of service when I was a resident. We would push patients, draw blood, do many things that now others in the hospital do for us so that the resident can focus on seeing the patient, operate on the patient, seeing the patient in clinic. So it's really refocused us on education as well as making sure that that there's better work-life balance for the resident and also to uh, make sure they're not fatigued. But wouldn't there be more handoffs? I mean, is there kind of unintended consequences of limiting a surgeon to 80 hours a week? Absolutely. So you do have to have better communication skills. We actually published an article in my journal, uh, JAMA Surgery, all about handoffs, the top 10 ways to do a handoff. So you do have to have better communications. But what's helped with that has been the electronic medical record. With that, you can actually leave messages, notes, be more complete that actually uh, many people can access. So using the electronic medical record, better communications, we've been able to do the handoffs better, similar to what the nurses do between shifts or those physicians that work shifts, say, in the emergency room. So there are more handoffs, but I think we've gotten better at that. And we also sit down and take the time and really go through each patient as they hand off so people understand the communication. The good news, too, is now there's usually a resident that works like five nights in a row so that they relieve the resident each day, so they tend to see the same patients day after day. And the nurses report great satisfaction that they'll have the same resident every night versus a resident every seventh night. So there were some positive things that came out of it as well. And you write that the needs of the surgeon have given way to patient-centered care. 
Can you tell us what patient-centered care really means in terms of surgery and, and how that's different from the approach that came before? Well, back when I first started practicing, I must admit my whole schedule was really related around Julie. You know, when could Julie be in the operating room? When can Julie be in the clinic? And when was Julie available? Because we were so busy. And we didn't think much about when the patient or the patient family could be available. We did, in a sense, according to their urgency or emergent nature. But now we really pay attention to that, where we ask the patient, like I did today. I saw a patient in the clinic. She needs an operation. She's an out-of-town patient, and we're planning a certain date that's available to her because her family's available. Just those simple questions and that availability makes that patient really know that we're doing her operation on the day that's available for her and her family. And we also make sure that we include the family and other loved ones in our decisions. Again, better communication. So thinking all about the patient, how would you feel if you were the patient? I ask my residents frequently, what would you do if it was you, the patient? And like today, I would want to be seen today, and I would have wanted to choose my operating room date. So if you treat the patient like you want to be treated, you usually will do the right thing. So you're in charge of a medical school at a time when the practice of surgery and medicine in general is facing a lot of pressures. What do you think are some of the bigger changes that today's new surgeons will face in in the coming decades? Well, I think we're going to have to do more and more as, as outpatients. I think as the techniques get improved, that they get more minimally invasive, and that we're able to catch diseases earlier, I think we'll see much more outpatient surgery, which means patients will need to be prepared and educated to go home, will need to be able to have avenues of communication in case they're not doing as well as home, and we need to spend time communicating with them either by phone or email or texting to know they're okay, which is very different than how we used to round in the hospital. We also are going to have to be very mindful of cost. You know, as we're letting everyone have access to care, which is really important, we're going to have to really watch the costs of every procedure, making sure each one's very much indicated, making sure that we offer interventions that have great success rates, and making sure, again, that the patients understand that. Because we want everyone to have an opportunity to get great care, but we also know that there's only so much money in the system that we'll have to be careful. Mm-hmm. And probably the third thing, I worry every day that because we have to be so efficient, we have to watch expenses, everything's outpatient, that we need to make sure we don't lose sight of innovation. One of the things we do at academic healthcare centers is innovation, improving care through new procedures, new ways. And we need to make sure we maintain that, even though that we have the cost containment and also are looking for more efficient care. And one of the innovations, and when it comes to surgeon training, is uh, the patient simulators. Are they that necessary? Do they provide a lot of benefits? And if so, why compared to a surgeon um, practicing on real patients? Sure. Well, I must admit, I was a skeptic, too, because I was not trained on simulators, but many highly performing people do use simulators, such as airplane pilots and uh, NASCAR drivers, and many people do it. And it's really important not only to get familiar with the tools and instruments that you use for, say, laparoscopic surgery and robotic surgery, but it also prepares your mind for something that may go wrong. So the residents and students will go through scenarios where something may go wrong, so that if it does, you've actually lived it once. So it's not as shocking or surprising that you're ready with those kind of reactions to that. We've done that with um, ATLS training, so advanced trauma life support, so you know just what to do when someone comes in that's been in a car accident or who has been shot. We've done this for even simple life support to do CPR. So it really prepares you for what could go wrong so that you're really confident that, okay, I've seen this. I know what to do now versus saying, oh my goodness, I knew this could happen, but I haven't seen it. So I think it mainly makes people ready for those things that could go wrong. And then people do it in teams. So you actually are able then to enlist and employ your team to help you solve the problem. And if you did do it wrong, 
You can do it again without consequence through simulation, where in live patients, you never want that to be true. Right. So it is very much like pilot training where you can simulate a crash um, without it, without hurting anybody. <laughs> without hurting anybody. And then it gives people that inner confidence that they know the steps in case something does go wrong. And finally, what are some of the most important skills that surgeons in training are learning now that maybe weren't emphasized during your residency? Well, I think interpersonal skills such as good communication and education are really emphasized now because most of our errors in the hospital occur because there was inadequate communication either between health care workers or the patient, probably 60 to 70 percent of them. So being an excellent communicator, a frequent communicator, and someone that takes feedback is so important. You still have to be a great surgeon. You have to have great skills, hand-eye coordination, great diagnostic skills, and be quick on your feet to recognize things that are wrong. But I think the communication skills in employing teams is the most important thing. When there's so much to learn as a surgeon in training, how can you really teach those communication skills? I mean, do you have time? Do they have really time? I'm thinking about the, the busy surgeon who's really concentrating on, on the technical skills. Well, I think we interview for them now. Uh, here at UC Davis, we actually do a, a multiple mini-interview to make sure that the students coming into medical school do have these skills. So we start off with those that have them. So we look for those skills, as well as empathy, intelligence, great test scores. So they come in good. And then we spend time in medical school emphasizing those skills. And then we do teach and train in the simulation center those skills, too. We have modules on communication, giving bad news, leadership, all those kind of things, as well as doing the operation. So it's emphasized in their simulation training as well. Well, Dr. Freischlag, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, and I know you're a busy person, so we appreciate the time that you've given us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking us to talk about our article. Dr. Julianne Freischlag is the dean of the University of California Davis School of Medicine. And at the end of this month, she'll wrap up her stint as editor-in-chief of JAMA Surgery. I'm no Superman. And that's it for this week's program. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can post comments about what you heard today on Facebook and submit suggestions for future shows at our website at soundmedicine.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our free podcast. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf prepares our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits our program, and he chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News. Our executive producer is Eric Eggleton. Sound Medicine is a copyrighted 2015 production of the Indiana University Trustees and WFYI, Metropolitan Indianapolis Public Broadcasting Incorporated, all rights reserved. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.